I'm Amy Wagner. Welcome to the best of Simply Money. Each week we put together some of our favorite segments from the 55 KRC radio show exclusively for this podcast. Well, if you were traveling this weekend or paying attention to the news, Southwest Airlines had some major problems. They seem to be slowing down now, but the labor problems behind those issues, those are still heating up. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Strovac. Southwest canceled close to 30% of its flights over the weekend. Uh, Those disruptions appear to be slowing down. But, Steve, we've heard these horror stories from people before. This is not fun if you are trying to travel. Can you imagine? I I don't know if you've ever had a flight canceled. I have. Yeah. It is incredibly disruptive. And, and, you know, Southwest has always been known as great customer service, yep. cheap fares. Well, one out of two ain't bad, I guess, lately. <laughs> I mean, they canceled a total of 2,100 flights over the weekend. You mentioned that's 30 percent. 1,100 of them were on Sunday. Guess what happened on Monday? Stock dropped 4 percent. Imagine that. And, and, you know, here's the interesting thing, Amy, that that right out of the box, Southwest said, yeah, it's air traffic control. There were some storms. It's out of our uh, out of our control. There's nothing we can do. You kind of had a feeling that that wasn't really the case. And, 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 you know, and and, and even the Southwest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And even the customers were saying, well, air traffic doesn't seem to be affecting the other airlines in this (laughs) terminal, you know, so and it's starting to come out. And, and, yeah, there's staffing issues. They've been slicing it really, really thin uh, for quite some time now uh, on on staffing, and it came back to bite them over the weekend. So we'll see how it goes. It looks like their, their week is settling down. I noticed at CVG, no cancellations today. Um, that's a good thing. Maybe it's getting yeah. back to normal, but, uh, but yeah, remember, it took a little Steve, hit on their PR. Well, it was, it was just a couple months ago that Spirit Airlines, which is a discount carrier, had similar situation. Tons of flights canceled. In fact, when we got married on the beach in Florida, dear friends of hours out of Louisville found out hours before they were supposed to take off that their flight was canceled. Oh. They had a reroute through Chicago, got there like a day later. We're still able to do it. But, you know, when you look at the the story here with Spirit a couple months ago and in, in Southwest now, uh, it almost makes you wonder how other airlines aren't going through this. And anecdotally, I've talked to a number of Delta pilots. And, and, and let's back up a little bit. As, as far as setting the stage for how this happened, sure. go back to the beginning of the pandemic when Nobody was traveling. Yeah. Nobody was traveling. And you've got these airlines that are employing tens of thousands of people uh, with pretty hefty paychecks. And a lot of them looked at, you know, you see the pictures of the all the airplanes just parked out in the desert up and down the runways. Uh, and, and what a lot of airlines did was, and I don't, Delta did not have to furlough, but they gave early retirement. They offered options to a lot of people. And then people started getting vaccinated. We started traveling again and there weren't pilots to keep up with the demand for all those flights. Uh, you, you know, it, it, you think the airlines, when the pandemic hit, thought this was going to be a 10-year issue. I, yeah. I mean, they were retiring. They they were doing everything they could do to reduce their workforce. And when you offer furloughs and, and retirement, I mean, some some of these people are saying, okay, that's permanent. I'll either go to work elsewhere or I guess I'm retiring. And, and they're not coming back, you, yeah. you know. So now they're dealing with uh, the, the fallout from that. And, it, again, it's not just Southwest. They just seem to be the ones hit hardest over over uh, all of these staffing issues. But um, I, I, I flew last weekend out of uh, CVG, and, and I'll tell you what, people are back flying. That's that's not the issue. So I, I really think you, you're talking about 
um, long-term answers on a short-term issue just really biting these airlines. And, and um, Southwest needs to get their staffing fixed or else um, they're going to have long-term issues on people that may not fly them anymore. Well, let's, I mean, seriously, though, the headlines aren't or the uh, headaches aren't just there for Southwest or for aviation, the airline industry. Uh, every sector, you know, yeah. is dealing with major worker shortages. Employers added 194,000 jobs last month. Economists expected 490,000 new yeah, jobs. Major 300,000. Yeah you know, below what the expectations were, that has a huge ripple effect through the economy. Yeah, it does. And I think a lot of uh, economists and, and just a lot of people felt, okay, um, maybe that's because the kids aren't back in school yet. Maybe it's because they're still collecting their big fat unemployment checks and making more money sitting on their you-know-what at home. Well, all that's changed. And, and what hasn't changed is the people aren't going back to work. I mean, we're looking at a participation rate. In other words, how many people are actually trying to get out there and look for work? Um, it's dropped from 61.7 to 61.6 percent just from August to September. Um, before the pandemic, it was around 63 percent. So there's a lot of people that just aren't going back to work, Amy. And what I wonder is, is this a change? I, I mean, my mom didn't work growing up, and, and uh, I, I'm wondering, are, are people reevaluating their values after the pandemic and thinking, you know, maybe um, maybe one income is enough and, and yeah. maybe we can have some more satisfaction in life other than both of us going crazy and working? Well, you're right. And you look at the percentage of people participating in the workforce and, and the fact that women are actually the ones that are slowest to come back, you know, and, and truly you said, OK, September back to school. We thought everyone was going to be going back to work, yet women still don't seem to be going back. Uh, you know, when you've got 61.6 percent uh, participating in the workforce, but then only 59.9 percent of women What's going on here? I think you're right. I think there's a number of things. There's families who realized you could get by on one salary during this pandemic. And I have, I'm very close to a family who that situation happened to. They're living off of one salary. And, and actually the wife is is kind of reassessing what her priorities are. And she's got some major passions that she's kind of getting some certifications around. So she might do a complete career change, but she's not in a hurry to do it because she knows, okay, yeah. we're okay living on one salary. Uh, and, you know, we thought kids were going to be going back to school and they have, but many of them are back to school for two weeks and then they're quarantined for two weeks yep. and they're back yep. to school for two weeks and someone on the soccer team is exposed to COVID. And so the rest of so there's a lot going on here and you can make all the predictions in the world and I'm really glad that you and I we're in the business of talking about the things but not predicting them because I wouldn't want to be an economist during all of this no no I I, I mean that that this is such an unusual situation a pandemic you know for yes. crying out loud this is something that global pandemic yeah yeah this is a big deal and and it hit us so hard and and for such a, a long period of time I really think it changes society. I mean, we can mm -hmm. talk about going back to work, two-income families. We can talk about uh, working remotely and the ways technology have changed work habits, lack of commuting, um, you know, moving to suburbs instead of having to live in the city close to your job. A lot of changes coming through uh, uh, over the past year and a half. And I, frankly, Amy, I think some of these changes are here to stay. And I'm, I think some of these changes are actually not a bad idea.
You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. We're talking about what happened with Southwest over the weekend. 30% of their flights canceled. And when you dig deeper into it, the major labor shortage is impacting the airline industry as it is, you know, so many others. But let's talk about if you're not in that airline industry, you're not traveling anytime soon, right? What does this mean for you? Well, honestly, the wage pressure that's going on right there may help you right now. We have seen, Steve, I haven't seen numbers like what we're seeing year over year wage increases. I can't remember a time when we've seen anything close to this. No, no. It's almost like the real estate market. You know, it goes up a little bit, you know, cost of living, whatever, one or two percent per year. And then boom, all of a sudden, it's a whole different picture. I mean, Bank of America, you don't need a $15 minimum wage uh, mandated by Congress. Bank of America already bumped their minimum wage up to 21 bucks. Walmart, Target, Best Buy, Chipotle, they're all at 15 bucks or more. So that's where I have a hard time, Amy, with this inflation 5.3%, which is a really, really high number. I don't think that's even the real number. I think the real number's higher, or at least it may go higher because of wage inflation. Yeah, no doubt. And, and truly, I was joking about having to make these predictions about what will happen. But you said this from the beginning. As soon as we started talking about the fact that, you know, Chipotle was uh, raising wages, but also the cost that you're going to pay to go in and eat there, uh, you know, how can that be temporary? Some of this has to be permanent. Um, You know, so if you are not happy with what you're making right now, uh, it might make sense to go to your boss, document what you've been able to accomplish over the past year, year, two years, whatever that is, uh, and say like, hey, you know, there's there's a lot of jobs out there. And I know there's, you know, you're having a hard time hiring. You know, I, I think that most employers would say that retaining their quality, uh, you know, talent right now has to be a, a top thing for them. Interestingly, though, Steve, um, some flexibility looks like it's going away for white collar employees. Uh, maybe those who really got used to working from home. Uh, now they're being told maybe it's time to get back into the office. Yeah, a lot of companies are, are realizing, you know what, working remote works for some jobs but for some others you really need the face-to-face you need the interaction and and, you know I I came back to work last May for me it's partly social and partly compartmentalizing work from home and uh, especially the financial services uh, industry uh, Amy they're uh, mainly out of New York Um, they're saying to everybody we need you back in the office, no more of this working remotely. And, and the numbers are, are kind of bearing that out. I, I mean, the company that that issues key cards, they're called cancel systems, um, that's one good way of see, seeing, okay, are these people swiping their cards and going oh, yeah. back to work? Yeah, I, I mean, number of workers returning to their offices, it hit 36% last week, up from 31% the week of Labor Day. So, I mean, these are big increases, and, and I think it's the beginning of a trend. But it's not everybody. I know um, both of my sons, they're still working from home. Um, and they're kind of, their employers are kind of uh, saying, you know, when the numbers go down, that's when we're going to start calling people back. And a lot of companies are following suit. They're saying, we're going to give three weeks' notice before we say, you need to come back to work. But the trend is obviously there.
And I think that's interesting because, you know, you know, at Allworth, we were off, my goodness, you know, and we have some flexibility, right? You decided to go back sure. into the office, but we said, you know, we want just kind of a skeleton crew there so that we're not uh, exposing our clients and we're not exposing each other. Uh, and then we were all set to go back on August 1st of this year. And at least we're kind of a hybrid schedule, have everyone in the office, you know, two to three days a week. And, you know, then, then the, um, then the Delta variant came around and all of a sudden, you know, so we kind of backed yeah, off that. Yeah. It is difficult, I think, for employers to say with certainty, hey, guys, this is the date because things keep changing with this pandemic, with this with this virus. And so, uh, you know, I think the fact that some companies are saying, listen, we're just going to give you three weeks notice mm-hmm. and that's the best we can do. Uh, I think we've all learned during this time to be flexible and to kind of just be ready for anything. And we'll see what comes our way. Here's a Simply Money point. The labor market is shifting, but those willing to show up may be able to ask for a little more. Just make sure you can document the ways that you contribute to the team. All right, you know, it's easy to talk about the bad news. There's lots of stuff going on in there. But how about some positive in the wake of the pandemic, this is kind of one of those silver linings that's coming. State pensions seem to be stabilizing. Steve, I live in Kentucky. <laughs> Never would have saw this one coming. I know. This is something we've been worried about for years. And Kentucky has one of the worst in, or had one of the worst in the country. I, for I mean, a while, there was I a, think it was the worst for a while. Oh, I mean, there was a legitimate concern. And I've got I've, investors I work with that are part of that system that were legitimately concerned. Am I going to get my pension check? Is it yeah. going to run out at some point? The good news is, and it's great to say the, the, the words good news along with state pensions. The good news is pensions are in the best shape since 2009. I, I mean, this is really good to be able to to tell people. Uh, Pew did a, a fantastic research job, and and the four states uh, uh, with the uh, worst pension systems—Illinois, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, New Jersey—they're showing contribution rates. This is not rate of return. Contribution rates have increased by an average of sixteen percent per year over the last 10 years. That's a double the national average of 8%, which itself is a good improvement. I mean, they're putting more money into these pensions. And yeah, yeah if, you've got, if you've got a pension running out of money, adding more money into it is a great way to fix it. State funding uh, ratios right now, Ohio's at 80%, Indiana 70%, back to Kentucky 45%. But I remember not too long ago, I think we were around the 30% range. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're moving in the right direction here. I feel like this is a, a tale as old as time. From the very beginning, right out of college as a general assignment reporter, I have been covering state mm-hmm. pensions in Ohio, in Kentucky, in the city of Cincinnati. You know, funding these it's it's difficult and, and you know figuring out what kind of projection you're going to get versus what you actually get and and I think that's one thing to think about right now right I think Kentucky has had like a 30% return on their investments over the past year now that is fantastic when you look at I know there's a yeah. state teachers pension that's fantastic but it also makes you wonder what's being invested in right yeah yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> if if i were getting that kind of return on my investments i'm starting to think to myself Maybe I'm pretty heavy stock in order to get that. What's going to happen when the market goes down and what goes up 
must come down, yeah. you know? So I hope they're quick on their feet, but if they made that kind of money in, in you know, a legitimately strong uh, stock market, um, I, they're, they, they're, setting them, they're setting themselves up for a pretty big drop if they stay that aggressive. Hey, here's the problem I've got though. I mean, you mentioned these numbers, Ohio's 80% funded, Kentucky 45%. Wouldn't you like to see 100%? Yeah. Wouldn't it be kind of nice if you saw? Well, that would hey, be very they're nice. They're putting the, the the correct amount of money in the pension. Nobody has a thing to worry about. Forty five percent, still less than half. Last yeah. time I checked, right. uh, you know, there's still well, some and, concerns and you out see, there. Like taking away benefits, right? Like a yeah. cost of living increase, or um, you know, certain uh, health care benefits. You know, I think there's many people who have pensions that are just kind of nervous about it. In fact, there's a, um, a Kentucky State Police officer who I have known for years, and every once in a while he'll message me, and he messaged me this morning, and he said, I'm coming into Allworth. He said, because I'm tired of like this keeping me up at night. I just want to make some decisions and have some control Good. Good for him. Yeah. over what's going on. And I thought, oh my gosh, because, you know, the last time he contacted me, it was a lump sum payout or what do I, do I take my chances with this? And I know for a lot of you, that's really frustrating because a pension you think should be a guarantee, right? but it's not. It's it, not guaranteed. I know. I know. And, and here's why they got in trouble. Let's just think this through a little bit. Okay, you know you have this many people that are expecting this much money, and this is what you need to put into that pension if you assume a 5% rate of return, something reasonable. A lot of these pensions assumed a 7 8 yeah. 9% rate of return. Why did they do that when they knew they can't average that kind of return? Because that makes it legal for them to put less money into the pension. Yeah. And, if and that's state, the only way it works out on paper, right? Well, you know, the states, they want to spend money except for pensions, it, it seems, because that's something that they can get by cheaper and spend that money on other things that they want to do. You, you know, so it's their own fault for getting in trouble. But uh, kudos to the states for getting it together and, and increasing the contribution rates and getting better rates of return. I just get concerned when I see Kentucky with a 30% rate of return, and I know that they've only got about 25% of their money in the pension in bonds and cash. So yeah. that means 75% is in stock and, and real estate and other risky investments. So I, I hope they can continue to get decent returns, but I'm a little bit nervous. Here's the Simply Money point. State pensions, they are doing better, but there are still plenty of questions about what you might consider a retirement guarantee. If you can't save in a 401k, what are your options tonight we're reviewing some other choices that you have joining me now is brian james a certified financial planner on the allworth team and a regular on simply money brian there are a lot of people that don't have 401k plans available to them through their employer yet um there's there's three or four pretty darn good uh, choices for alternatives um fill me in a little bit on what what people not covered by a 401k can do Sure. And again, that's a lot of people, right? So that's a, there's almost 47 million Americans out there, about a third of the total yeah. workforce who simply doesn't have access to a retirement plan. There's a lot of people who just heard me say that and they're going, well, what does that mean? Everybody has a 401k, right? That's not the case. There's a lot of small businesses out there that just don't have the cash flow to support it. Or there, there's a lot of rules and regulations uh, from the Department of Labor, Labor and the IRS that just make it cost prohibitive to do this. So some people just plain do not have an employer-based retirement plan. 
easiest, simple, if you find yourself in that situation, then what that means is that there is no income limit for you to contribute to an IRA, right? So a lot of us are familiar with uh, the idea that I can only make so much money if I want a deductible IRA. Well, if you don't have access to a 401k or a 403b or a SEP IRA or whatever through your employer, then you do not have an income limitation. You can make a bazillion dollars however you're doing it. You can still make that deductible or Roth uh, contribution. Well, so yeah, that's you, one. Know, you know, there's something that is available that a lot of people have not heard of called a solo 401k. And this is great for sole proprietors, people that own a business and don't have any employees. Um, one of the big negatives to setting up a 401k for a large uh, organization, and you mentioned it, it's the cost. There is a big cost to both set it up and administer it. And not every employer, especially if they only have uh, a couple of employees, want to go through that. But if you're a self-employed individual and don't have anybody working for you, there's actually something called a no-cost solo 401k. These are becoming more and more popular. Right. So these are a solo 401k is uh, is just that. It's one employer. I am one one person working in one company. Maybe I have my spouse. But other than that, that's it. I do not have uh, employees. If you find yourself in that situation, you, of course, have you know you have the IRA option, as we mentioned earlier. But a solo 401k can allow you to put sometimes up to fifty, sixty thousand dollars uh, into these things, provided you have the cash flow to to support it. There are hoops you got to jump through for this. But these are becoming more and more popular as more and more small businesses are popping up and uh, generating the cash flow for their owners to be able to support themselves. So that's a great alternative to look into. It's a great alternative, but only if you're a sole proprietor. And I, I had a situation where uh, somebody that I, I've worked with for years, their business started to expand and they had to hire a couple of full-time employees. Well, guess what? No more solo 401k. And that's when they bumped up into a normal 401k. The good news is when, when years and years ago, and I, I, this wasn't a specialty, but I was involved in setting up a couple of 401ks year, uh, a number of years back, um, they were really crazy expensive. And I'm seeing the cost structure come down to the point where it's really not that difficult if you're willing as an employer to put 2 or 3% away on behalf of your employees as a matching contribution. Uh, the cost can almost go down pretty darn close to zero on some of these plans. So that's that that's an alternative. Let, let's talk a little bit from the employee standpoint, though. If you're an employee not covered, you mentioned that uh, we can do uh, a, a traditional uh, IRA. Um, how about simple IRAs? Where, where do they fit in? So a simple IRA, Steve, that's that's where you have it's it's kind of like a very tiny 401k for a very tiny company. So in other words, I've got the solo 401k stopped when I had an employee who was not my spouse. Now you have to follow some rules and make sure that your other employees are participating and they're benefiting in similar ways. So the simple IRA uh, is, is, is something you open up like with maybe a mutual fund company or a brokerage. The company itself, your employer, will make a contribution alongside yours. As you mentioned, they have to. There's a minimum of 2 to 3% of your salary they have to contribute uh, alongside what you want to put into it. So the limit there is, is 13 and a half, 13,500. That's what the employee can put in. If you're over 50, that goes up to 16,5. And then you add on top of that, the two or 3% that your employer has to commit to putting in. So if you have a simple IRA, that means that, uh, it should mean that all the employees you work with, no matter how small the company is, should have some similar arrangement. But the, the point is to allow the employee and the employer to make contributions without having to step up to a more complicated 401k. 
I, I, I've got one more for you, and, and it, uh, it's called a spousal IRA. And a lot of people aren't aware that these exist, but it's, it's kind of a bonus saving strategy for married couples. Let, let's say uh, a working spouse uh, is contributing to a traditional IRA, or, or for that matter, a Roth IRA. That, that person can also contribute in the name of their non-working spouse. So in my case, if I were putting money in a traditional IRA, I can also put money in my wife's name as the non-working spouse, uh, and it's in her name. So it, it kind of lets you, you double up uh, for uh, contributions if you're not covered by a 401, uh, 401k. Here's a Simply Money point. Even if you don't have a 401k, you still have options. Oh, it's not a fun part of your financial planning, but a piece of it that can't be ignored is long-term care insurance. What happens if you get sick later in life, and, and how do you make sure that you and your family, your, you and your spouse are covered? Joining us tonight is our estate planning expert from the law firm of Wood and Lamping, Mark Rackman. Hey, Mark, this is something that, again, people don't like thinking about, but it's something that every single one of us needs to address in, in one way or another. And I think the key is looking at long-term care insurance and deciding whether it makes sense for you or not. Well, it is. And it's a, a big black box of mystery for most folks, uh, as yeah. is a lot of insurance. Uh, people don't really understand how it works. Okay. And so let's start with, you've got five tips on how to buy it. And let's keep in mind, too, as we're talking about this, Mark, that there used to be dozens of insurance companies that offered these policies. You had all kinds of options. Not so anymore. The marketplace is very limited. So how do you begin? Well, I think the first thing you've got to do is to figure out whether or not you're the right profile for long-term care insurance. And I think the place to start is by deciding whether or not you can qualify, either you or your spouse, whether you can qualify for Medicaid without impoverishing your spouse. Uh, if so, long-term care insurance is probably not necessary. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a good idea, Amy, because long-term care insurance will always improve your prospects uh, for admission to a quality facility, but it's not necessary if you don't have the risk of being impoverished by it. If you are looking or planning for long-term care markets, almost the people that should be looking at these policies are those that fall in the middle, right? You have too much to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough set aside to self-insure, meaning uh, if you or your spouse had to go into a long-term care facility, first of all, these are insanely pricey. You're looking at, what, probably six figures over the course of a year? Yeah, probably between ten and $12,000 a month at this yes. point for the uh, decent facilities. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. That's a hundred to one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars a year. So if you don't have that kind of money set aside where you can handle that, then Mark, wouldn't you say it's those who fall in the middle who probably need to start looking at this? Well, that's exactly right. So uh, if you're if you're if you're below that middle, you may have less uh, less exposure because you have less assets to lose. And on the other side of the extreme, if you have a lot of money, you can uh, you can afford it. You can self-insure we call it, which means you can afford to pay for care. Um, you know, the average nursing home resident lives about 2.6 years. If you can afford to pay for nursing home care for, let's say, three or four years without threatening the financial security of your spouse, um, then you can self, you may choose to self-insure. Which, going by the numbers that you just said, that's $300,000 plus. 
out of pocket for one of you. And, and Mark, what often happens is one person needs to go into a long-term care facility, but also the other person needs to be able to stay home, maintain the house, cover bills. So there's a lot to think about here. Well, that's exactly right. And deciding whether or not you have enough money to self-insure depends in large part on what your income is. Um, you know, many of us have uh, that are self-employed or have jobs that don't come with a pension, uh, we have to have money in the bank because Social Security is not enough to live on. Other mm-hmm. folks have jobs that come with with good pensions, and so they have substantial monthly income. That reduces how much money you need in the bank to cover long-term care. All right. So, Mark, when you're thinking about these, um, and especially if you're married, how do you decide, uh, do we need one policy? Do we need two policies here? Because these premiums are not cheap. In fact, th- the fact that there's fewer and fewer insurance companies offering them means that the price of these have been going up over the past few years, somewhat astronomically in some cases. Well, that's right. So the question is, can you get by with just one policy? And to do that, you've got to start by assessing your family history, your own personal medical history, and your financial profile. Uh, Let me give you an example, Amy. Uh, If I'm retired from a career in the military and I'm in good health, I've got VA benefits and decent savings, I may choose just to insure myself uh, with the idea that if my wife goes into the nursing home, I know that my VA benefits, I know that my, my military pension, all of those things are safe and that I'm not at risk to be impoverished. Or I may choose to just insure myself, knowing that if, that, uh, if I can cover any expenses I may have, that it won't wipe out my wife. Um, it all comes down to what is the risk, and can I can I afford can I self insure for one person but not two? Mark Reckman, our estate planning expert, joining us tonight with some great insight on long term care. Do you need an insurance policy? How do you go about it? And Mark, also, where do you go? Right, where do you go to find a policy? And also know and have confidence that that person isn't trying to sell you something that you don't need, that they're making a huge commission off of, but that it really is the right thing for you. No, that's a tough one, Amy, but I'm a fan of using independent uh, insurance agents, uh, not ones that are captive to a particular company. Um, They do a better job of comparing policies and benefits. They do a better job of customizing the policy to fit your specific circumstances. That makes a lot of sense. And also, before you go in, do your research, right? I mean, make sure that you know what you're talking about, what you think your best options are. Not that this person can't educate you and help you figure out maybe what's truly best for you, but you don't want to go in having no clue about what's needed or what costs might be. Well, there's a learning curve to this. And if you can get a head start on that learning curve, by doing a little reading, find a Consumer Reports article or, or some bias, some non-bias source who can describe how long-term care policies work, learn a little of the terminology, then when you meet with an agent, you'll be able to talk their language. For example, um, you need to know what assisted care means and whether or not it's covered. You need to know what in-home care means and is that covered. There's something we call an elimination period. That's the period of time that you have to pay for yourself before the insurance policy kicks in. If that's a short period, your premiums are higher. If you can afford, for example, if I want to reduce my premiums, I may take a six-month elimination period. In other words, I'm willing to assume responsibility for the first six months of institutionalization, and if I have a longer elimination period, my premiums will go down.
So you're essentially kind of self-insuring in the beginning uh, and then covering on the back end the fact that if you're in there for a longer period of time, the long-term care insurance will kick in there. You know, you know, Mark, you have been doing this for a long time. And one of the things I love about having you on the show is the wealth of experience that you bring uh, and also the, the stories about the, the clients that you've worked with. Anything that come to mind as far as uh, for people who just maybe think like, I'm going to blow this off. I'm not going to worry about it. You know, well, bad situations that people have come into by not planning for this. Yes. And, and the answer to that is that when you search for a nursing home, what you're going to find out is that the market changes and that uh, the market in Cincinnati, for example, was very, very different 10, 12, 15 years ago. Mm. Cincinnati overbuilt nursing homes, and nursing homes were looking all over for residents. It was easier to get into a nursing home. That's changed now. The market has caught up, and in Cincinnati, we have a much more balanced market. So when you go shopping for a quality facility, if you have a long-term care policy in your pocket, you're going to have better choices. You're going to like the facilities that are interested in you, and I've seen that over and over and over. Um, so long-term care insurance isn't always just about the risk. Sometimes it's used as a way to gain access to a better facility. That's great access. Great insights tonight from our estate planning expert from the law firm of Wood and Lamping, Mark Reckman. If you have not considered long-term care insurance and maybe you're getting in your 50s, closing in on retirement, definitely something worth thinking about. Some great tips to consider there. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You've been listening to the best of Simply Money. Now, if you could do us a favor, send this show to a friend if you think they may benefit from it, too. At All Worth Financial, we help you retire better.